trusting that you're awake. Um, what, what, what a blessing this is to spend Friday night together this way. I mean, uh, this is about as countercultural as you can expect, uh, that people show up on a church on Friday night and Saturday morning uh, to, to just study the Bible together. Um, Pastor Randy is very kind for saying it. I'm not like the previous speakers you had at Sovereign Grace Academy. Those guys are famous. Uh, this is what I enjoy doing. This is a great joy for me. And um, when I was about five, I, I'm told by my mom that uh, someone asked me, Joel, what do you want to do when you get older? And my response was, I want to be a pastor. And obviously my, uh, my dad is a pastor. But when the person asked me then again, why do you want to be a pastor? And I supposedly replied, because I want to use the microphone, uh, is <laughs> what I supposedly said, which means that I enjoy talking very much. And so this is a great joy for me, perhaps a pain for you, but uh, this, is, this is the highlight of my day and the week, and this is a tremendous joy for me to be here. Second part of our discussion we want to get to chapter 6 of the book of Romans. And as we do so, we like the first sec- session, let's read the chapter together. Uh, if nothing else, the reading of the word itself is power onto our hearts as it uh, sharpens us. So let's read it responsively again. Chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to the end of that verse, uh, chapter, verse 23. Hear now again the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. 
I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So far the reading of his word. For those of you who enjoy law and order... Uh, you are in good company, or perhaps bad. I also enjoy it as well. Law and Order is that show that goes on, uh, that went on for about 20 seasons, the original in particular, where the law portion is the police investigating the crime, and then the order part is those lawyers who prosecute the criminals. I may even sound like the opening line of that particular show. And as a result, although I'm not trained as a lawyer, I feel like I can be a lawyer just because I've been a devotee of that show for such a long time. Wonderful show with wonderful results normally. The reason I mention that is Paul is a wonderful lawyer in the sense that he's making an argument. He's making an argument from chapter 1 on. As we indicated before, he talked about the need for the righteousness of God because all of us have sinned. And we talked about that from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. From there, he talked about the fact that we are justified by faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. And chapter 5 talked about the benefits on the foundation of that justification. That's the story that you and I find ourselves in. We have been justified by faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in speaking of this salvation by grace... Here, Paul proceeds to now answer any objections that people might have. Like any good essay writer, or perhaps any good lawyer, he's anticipating the arguments that may come out, that may go against the doctrine of grace that he has argued thus far. You know how that is often, isn't it? There is a wonderful story told by James Boyce where he talks about a rock climber going up the side of the cliff and he slips. And as he's slipping, he grabbed onto the only thing he can, which happened to be a root of a tree coming out from the side of the rock. He held on for his life and he looked down. He had far to fall. He looked up and there was no one up there to help him out. Desperate, he reached up and he said, is there anyone who can help me? Is there anyone who can help me? He waited for a while and then there was this great baritone voice because God's voice must be baritone and he says I am God I will help you oh God please help me what should I do and God replied to him by saying trust me let go of the tree let go of the tree and the guy hanging there for his life looked down looked up looked down again and he said is there anyone else that can help me is the story that was told about our inability to accept the doctrine of grace. It seems 
too good to be true. Often, when people hear this doctrine of grace of God in Christ Jesus who justifies us, many questions come to mind. And people struggle with these issues. And from chapter five, uh, chapter 6 all the way into chapter 11, he's answering questions that are often considered objections to this justification. In 6 and 7, he's talking about the relationship to our sanctification. That is, how do we become more and more holy? In chapters 9 through 11, he's talking about then, is God fair for doing this? Right? As he points out that he himself, a Jew, he talks about the potential objections that are raised. And so chapters 6 through 11, until the part where he starts talking about the overall application in chapter 12 and on, he's answering various objections. We're jumping right in the middle of these objections in chapter 6. One of the things that I want you to see in terms of the way Paul structures his argument, because our time together is not only about content-to-content transfer, I hope, but that this gives us an opportunity for us to think about how do we read the Bible for our benefit and for our edification and understanding. One of the things that you want to ask in Paul's writing is not only what does he say, but how does he say it? Not only what content does he give, But how does he structure his argument? Because oftentimes, how he says what he says is just as interesting and important as much as what he says. And the reason I point that out is because of the chart that I provide for you in your outline. The rhetorical device he uses is called a diatribe. A diatribe. A diatribe can be explained simply this way, that when you're making an argument... As you make an argument, you imagine someone asking questions to challenge what you're saying. We tell our students the best essays are essays that actually anticipate the questions and answer those questions. And a diatribe is a rhetorical method where the author or the speaker anticipate questions and objections that are going to be raised, and they, therefore, as an author or a speaker, answer those questions by interjecting this hypothetical or imaginary interlocutor, right? The questioner. We don't have to assume that this person existed, necessarily sitting there talking to Paul, or the person existed in Rome, because we don't know. Paul never visited Rome, as you recall. But what we can imagine is that as Paul uh, uh, logically works out this gospel of grace, there are people who are objecting to these issues, And he uses this method to not only raise the questions that are potential, but to answer it and to progress his argument from it. And he does this quite often in his writing. And he does that multiple times in these two chapters that we're discussing in this session and the next session. So we see that in terms of the question he asks in chapter 6.1, chapter 6.15, chapter 7.7, and chapter 7.13. Notice that they're all asking the question, and each time he answers it by saying what? May it never be. Impossible. No, it's untrue, he says. So he raises the question, and he rejects the premise of that question. But those questions arise as actual problems because of some misunderstanding 
that occurs as a result of his teaching. That is, he teaches about this justification by faith, the doctrine of grace, and our salvation that comes simply because of God's grace to us. He knows, he knows that it's unnatural to many, and he knows that many intentionally or unintentionally misunderstand what's being said. So these are what we're dealing with in chapter 6. In particular, there are two misunderstandings that we're going to deal with tonight. Tomorrow morning when we look at chapter 7, by the way, friends, chapter divisions are arbitrary, aren't they, right? These are later editions where chapter divisions are great for us to look up the text, but oftentimes they divide things right in the middle of the argument. It gets even worse with versification. So much so that the, the legend that's told is the gentleman who was publishing this doing so in two different places. Versification actually occurred when he's riding horseback, and whenever the horse jumped, that's where the verses were found. And this is the reason why oftentimes where the verse ends and the verse begins doesn't really make sense to us. Now, the real reason oftentimes is the language behind it, right? And the way that it actually displays in Greek language does not have to have clear endings with simple sentences like English does. So here tonight, we want to deal with the two misunderstanding related to the doctrines of grace. And then what happens tomorrow morning is that we're going to begin chapter 7 with yet another misunderstanding that Paul tries to answer. Because the first misunderstanding of this gospel of grace is simply this. Having heard that we are saved by grace because of Jesus Christ alone, received by faith alone, that we contribute nothing to this, there are objections that are raised, especially when they hear things like chapter 5, verse 20, when Paul says this, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I can see my children doing this, hearing it. There is more sin. And where there is more sin, there is greater grace. Sin, grace. Sin, grace. The conclusion is then, we should sin. Because whenever we sin, it increases grace. This is the misunderstanding that Paul is anticipating. It's actually coming on two fronts, because on the one hand, it comes from a misunderstanding that says, this means that we can live any way we want. Because even when we sin, it will simply result in the increase in grace. Therefore, we can live in any uh, form or shape enjoying and exercising those things that we've been wanting to for some time. There is nothing that stops us from doing so. We often talk about that as antinomian, which means anti means no or against, namas means law. That is to say, we conduct ourselves as if there is no law anymore. Another misunderstanding that comes with it is the nature of the question being raised is that some people are saying, what you're saying is going to result in people living that way. So what we must emphasize is people must live within the law. 
They must continue to do what we've been advocating. That is, they must live righteously in a manner outlined by the law. We oftentimes look upon those kind of advocates who argue that righteous living is the way to please God as legalists. That is, they're saying that by your living and by your keeping of the law, your standing before God is determined. Oftentimes, we as parents, in regards to our children, we are legalists. We have clear outlining of what they must and must not do. And we dole out uh, uh, rewards or punishments accordingly. It's a covenant of works, if you think about it. But the point being here, there are possible misunderstandings to what he said when he simply says, where there is sin, grace abounded more. Do you think this way? That when he said, when there is sin, grace abounds more, whether you use that as a reason or not, do you believe, therefore, you are helping yourself and the world by sinning more because as a result, grace may abound? Is this what we mean by abounding grace as the title of this weekend's lectures? Clearly not. Because Paul begins by saying, may it never be. It's a strong denial. May it never be, he says. By no means. Paul's answer simply revolves around the point that we just made from Romans 5:12 through 21. Why is it by no means, and Paul insists that persistent, ongoing sin is an impossibility for those who are justified by Christ and who are in him, simply because we're united with Christ. Because you and I are united with Christ. This seems to be his theological logic, right, in terms of his explanation. That is... If you and I are united to Christ, he says what this means, because he just explained that, didn't we? You either belong to Adam or you belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ and you are in him, that whole en Christo is what we say. This concept of being in Christ is repeated over 160 times in the Pauline letters. Because it talks about our relationship with him. And as we think about it, he says, if we are united to Christ, what that means according to 3, 4, and 5 is that we are united with him in his death. We died with him. We recognize that you didn't physically die yet. But what he's saying is that spiritually, when Christ died, we who are in him died with him. As he refers to the old self, here our old self died with and in Christ is what he says. If we died with Christ when he died, that if we died with him, then here verse 7 teaches us we also died to sin. As verse 7 goes on to argue for us simply, for one who has died has been set free from sin, he says. And so when Christ died and we died with him, we have been set free from sin and that we too along with him died to sin. Note the finality of this statement when he says, our old self, according to verse 6, was 
crucified with him. Our sinful selves died with him. Why? Because we are united to him. This means we have been set free from sin. We're going to look at in the second half of chapter 6 that tells us that the law dominates us. But by dying with Christ because we are found in him, we have been set free from sin. What that means is that if you are a believer and you are in Christ Jesus who justifies you, you are no longer the person you once were. The old self in sin has died with Christ. You've died to sin is what Scripture emphasizes for us. Now, friends, this doesn't mean that we never sin. In fact, 1 John tells us those who deny that they sin, they're liars, and they're making God out to be a liar. But what Scripture emphasizes for us is that we don't consistently, habitually, characteristically live in sin. We do not have to live in sin. And if I can make it even more clear, we do not have to sin. This is the part that I think many of us wrestle with. Because oftentimes in dealing with our own sinfulness, we come to say that these are things that we cannot overcome. But this is where Scripture disagrees with you. Scripture disagrees with you in saying that you and your old self in sin have died in and with Christ. What that means is that you have been separated and freed from your sin, no longer under its dominion and power, that you do not have to sin. I'm not minimizing the struggle that many of us have, myself included, in terms of the nagging sin we have, but this is where the emphasis, again, is who you are determines what you do. And here he says, who you are is that you are in Christ Jesus. Died to sin, freed from it. But it's not only that we leave sin behind, but that he goes on to argue in verse 8 that if we die together with Christ, we will also live with him. Being united with Christ does not only mean that we've been set free from sin, but that it means that we also rise again with Him in newness of life, as verse 6, 4, 9, 10, and 11 indicate to us. Not only do we leave behind our sin, we rise along with Christ into the newness of life. Now, part of this is under the equation of the larger picture of Paul where he often talks about us being a new creation. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, what? Here, in Christ, what happened? We are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. It's consistent with the teachings of the New Testament. In places like John chapter 3, when we see Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, Here, Nicodemus comes by night. Have you noticed that? And the reason he comes by night is to avoid the watchful eyes of his fellow leaders of Jews. What's intriguing to us is that Nicodemus actually occurs three times, appears three times in the Gospel of John. 
He appears in chapter 3 when he comes to Jesus and says, no one who's not from God can do the things that you do. How can I enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus, as he always does, never answers the question directly. He says, you must be born again. Huh? What do you mean I must be born again? I'm a grown man after all. He says, you are a teacher of the Jews and you don't understand. You must be born from above, is what he says. That is to say, you must be born again. Newly created. Paul elsewhere argues this in Colossians chapter 1 where he talks about the Christ him and who Jesus is where he talks about the fact that in chapter 1 verse 15 and on he, we, he tells us that Jesus is the creator of heavens and the earth as the first creator but it's not only the only creation that he does. He also tells us that he is also the recreator creating the church and creating us into his image. Here, our salvation is described as this recreative activity of God. And what Paul is saying here is that those of us who are in Christ Jesus by faith have died with him, arose with him. By death, we did away with sin. By resurrection, we rise as a new creation of God with a new heart, new desire, new ability to live for God. This is why John Calvin says on these passages in his institutes, he says, by these words, he not only exhorts us to follow Christ as if he had said that we are admonished through baptism to die to our desires by the example of Christ, uh, Christ's death and to be arise to right, aroused to righteousness by the example of his resurrection. But he also takes hold of something far higher. It's not only that Jesus sets the example for us, namely, that through baptism, Christ makes us sharers in his death, that we may be engrafted in it. And just as the twig draws substance and nourishment from the root to which it is grafted, so those who receive baptism with right faith truly feel the effective working of Christ's death in the mortification of their flesh, together with the working of his resurrection in the reviving or vivification of the Spirit. That is, those of us who are united to Christ, die to sin in His death, resurrected to newness of life in His resurrection, and draw from Him the power for us to continue in this task or in this life of the newness that Christ has given to us. This is why we can define sanctification is the work of God in us so that we may become more like Jesus Christ. But the way that happens is not by us, but by what God does in us. What's important here for us to see in the argument of Paul is simply this, that when we think through this issue of us becoming more and more like Christ in our lives. This is not done because of your work and my work. The point simply being made here is just as justification is by grace, here our sanctification is also by grace. Just as justification is by the power of God, sanctification is also by the power of God. Just as justification is based upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
Our sanctification is also based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because we are united to Him. In His death, we died to sin. In His resurrection, we arose again with Him to the newness of life. By Him, in His grace, we are able to die to sin. By Him, in His grace, we are able to live unto righteousness. At no point is the task or the route of us becoming more like Christ dependent on your strength or my strength. We cannot, we are unable, we do not even desire it. And we're going to see how our desires are untrustworthy. Um, We're in April now. Every year I make a New Year's resolution And please don't judge me when I say that because we got a very cheap deal many years ago, we pay very little to belong to 24-hour fitness. And every year I tell myself I am going to go and get myself into better shape. Uh, And I have been to 24-hour witness in the year of 2017, total of zero times. (laughs) And perhaps you're saying to yourself, I see it. Uh, is maybe what you're thinking at this point. But the point is, we cannot because our willingness is weak. It's not about, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, as much as our society and our oh, uh, many of our willingness and goodwill is there. Here, Scripture is reminding us, not only are we justified by grace, we are sanctified by grace because we belong to Jesus Christ. In his death, we died to sin. We rose again with him to the newness of life. And it's only by the power of this resurrection can we carry on and become more like him. But this is where the second interlocutor comes in. Because in verses 15 through 21, here the thought process is simply this. That you see what Paul said in verse 14, where he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You're not under law, but under grace. And the question that is misunderstood and asked is found in verse 15 when he says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Do you see how that misunderstanding leads to the question he asks that he wants us to answer? That when he says you are not under the law but under grace, does that mean we should sin because it's God's job to forgive? Therefore, that we ought to go on sinning? Since we live in the realm of grace, that God always forgives, this is the tact that husbands often use, right? We would rather ask for forgiveness than permission is oftentimes, sometimes what people say. Maybe it's just me. Nobody's actually uh, thinking about it too much. Uh, Here, the notion is since that God is always willing to give grace and forgive. Therefore, we may and we perhaps even should go on sinning. It's not like the first one where we say, by sinning, grace increases. No, we live in grace. Therefore, since God will always forgive us, since God will excuse us in our sinfulness and cover us in His in Son's blood, we may continue to do, do those things that He may not like. 
but that we find great enjoyment in. Is that perhaps something that you and I have thought about? That since God will forgive, it's okay. Since God will accept us in Christ, just this once. Since God always forgives, he will forgive me for this as well. I think this is a rampant issue among believers as much as it is anything else. That in understanding the free grace and gospel of grace that Paul has taught, it means, therefore, that God will forgive and that we continue on sinning and that God continues to display his grace. And this is where Paul says we need to answer this head on. And the way he answers it is by saying this in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness, he says? This is interesting, because as a student of the word, one of the things that pops out at us is the issue of slavery. Americans, like you and I, we are uncomfortable with the term slavery. Until recently, most of our translations avoided the translation of the word slaves as slaves, and often translated as bond servants, because it felt much better to us and perhaps even to distinguish. Here, if you would allow, I want to speak briefly about the slavery that Paul alludes to, because when everyone heard it, they would have understood it because they're seeing this on a regular basis. That is, slavery in the first century was somewhat different than the chattel slavery of the colonial period and the Americas in the 18 and 19, uh, I'm sorry, 1800s in particular. Here, slaves in the first century formed an integral part of ancient e- economies and societies, and often you'll see them walking in the streets. It's not easy to talk about, I admit. But we do need to recognize that there are some distinctions here. Greco-Roman slavery was, while not practiced uniformly, are generally economy-based, impermanent where self-purchase was possible, and at times voluntary. The slavery oftentimes we think of in the colonial period is race-based. As you can tell by the simple skin color, lifelong and permanent as well as based on kidnapping of sorts. So when you talk, walk the streets of Rome, you could not tell who was a slave and who was not a slave. Race played no role in slavery, right? Although specific circumstances are varied. Education among the slaves was greatly encouraged. In fact, some slaves were better educated than their owners, Like in some of the modern cultures as well, those who are, you know, Americans are really infatuated with tanning. But in certain cultures, to be dark meant that you were doing menial work. And as a result, darker skin is not something preferred. And this kind of intentional tanning would have been looked very much down upon. And so here in the first first century culture, many chose not to do work that was considered work. Many were owners of land. Life, was le- life of leisure was what was admired and understood to be uh, what people desired. And to do actually any work 
was to do the place, oh, the work in place of the slaves. As a result, many of the slaves were educated, better educated sometimes. Some were doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, sea captains, and the list can go on. Slaves at holidays. Slaves also married and had children. It's often not legally, but this is the way to suppress them in many ways. Slaves held high and sensitive positions. Slaves can own property, even their own slaves. And the religion and cultural traditions were same as those who are freeborn. No laws prohibited public assembly of slaves. Many became slaves involuntarily, either because they're conquered in battle or they're born into slave households. But often, there were also voluntary slaves. That is, many freeborn children sold themselves into debt bondage in order that they may get three squares a day and to be provided the necessities of life. And sometimes they did so in order to socially climb, especially if you have an owner that's prominent who's a patron, allows you to receive benefits that others might not. Now, In drawing a picture of what first century slavery might have looked like and what Paul might have understood, it doesn't mean things were great. Nobody wanted to be slaves necessarily if they had an option or choice. As one scholar concludes, to be a slave in the first century is to be bodies but not somebodies. That is, you had a body but you were a nobody. In distinguishing between the differences, we ought not to think that somehow it means slavery was desired. Slavery, slave was someone who belonged wholly to another, which involves absolute ownership and control by the owner, and the absence of the slave's freedom to those choose action or movement. And the word slave itself would have been considered repugnant in polite society. One more scholar points out, not surprisingly, that slaves are dead people walking. That is, they really had no past and no future. In society, they were forgotten people who simply walk through life. This is something that we have to keep in mind when this imagery is used. Not only in this context, wherever Paul uses it, We ought to remember the interesting phenomena of Onesimus and Philemon in that letter where Onesimus gets sent by Paul back to Philemon, the owner he wronged. And do you remember what Paul says? Here he says, receive him as you would receive me. And if he owes you anything, count that to my account, is what he said. Just imagine what that looks like. It means that Paul is willing to pay for another's wrong, Furthermore, that person of low status should be received equivalent to another person with a high status, a great exchange taking place. Just imagine that taking place, right? This is how the gospel is explained by Paul, and this is what Paul is telling Philemon to do. And as he returns him, he says, he returns to you as your beloved brother. In the New Testament, when Paul talks, uh, Jesus talks about slaves, he says, when a slave works in the field the whole day, according to Luke 17, and comes back home, does the master say, you know what, you had a hard day. Sit with me and eat. No, he says, go prepare my meal. When I'm done, you may have yours is the normal way. 
but yet he says, Onesimus is your beloved brother, no longer your slave. One more thing to just think about in the first century when it comes to slavery, that when you read Romans chapter 16, you see a lot of names. It's one of those chapters a lot of people like to skip. Uh, because it's names. It's kind of like reading through numbers. Uh, so when you read through chapter 16, you may not have recognized that there are 26 names there. When you analyze the 26 names, you come to recognize that four are clearly non-slave names. Ten are clearly names of slaves. Twelve were unsure. The reason we point that out is Paul is actually doing a first century Facebook thing, isn't he? You don't know me, but I know all these people you know because they're part of your church. But when he talks about these people in the church, four are clearly free, ten are clearly slaves or former slaves, which means, roughly speaking, 40% of the church minimally are slaves or former slaves. If you add the 12 that we're unsure about, as many as 80% plus of the church that Paul recognizes were either slaves or former slaves. In our churches, where oftentimes the middle class is represented, we may not recognize what that might look like in terms of what it might mean. That these landed gentry whose homes are so big, like Philemon, they can open up for house churches to meet, and when their slaves come and worship with them. They are no longer your slaves. The gospel has become a great leveler. And he says, they are your brothers and sisters. That's the amazing thing about what the gospel does. But this is the imagery they have, this slavery. And he says, here, for those who are in Christ Jesus, you are freed from this bondage. Because what happens is, 17 says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You who are in Christ Jesus, your old master was sin. Before Christ, we were slaves of sin. Just imagine the imagery that it conjures up. Here, it was a cruel master to us. We lived a life marked by obedience to sin. And there is impurity and lawlessness that continued in our lives. And the acceptance of it meant eventual death for you and I. Because we were dominated by sin. Perhaps you know what this feels like. Maybe you even know what this looks like. Perhaps there are people here tonight where this is the struggle that you have. There is no such thing as a small sin, according to this, when you are dominated by sin. Because sin begets sin. According to verse 19, lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. And the very small sin that seemed under control eventually controls you. Maybe this is where you say, oh, Joel, that's not me. Maybe this is a time for us to do a little diagnosis, right, in terms of where we are. Let me give you one example of a small sin that many of us wrestle with, how it can become a fire that becomes greater. It's usually the sin that begins it, small one. Uh, 
2007, uh, we had a big fire in San Diego. The reason I know this so well is my son was born in 2007, September. It was a month after his birth. We had this big fire where we first learned about reverse 911, where we got a call to evacuate. About a million homes in San Diego were evacuated. Our school closed on for a week. And we were packing our minivan to get away because there was a fire about a mile and a half from our home. But as we packed everything, pictures, computers, things that we thought were important, we forgot to pack clothes for ourselves. But the kids, we had lots of clothes for. It was only about half full. We had to fill up the rest of it, so we put in like kids' tricycles and everything else, toys that they might need. And our conclusion, Sharon and I, as we were driving up, was simply this, that either we need to buy more expensive things, <laughs> or 99% of what we have in the house, junk. Uh, useless in my mind. It's, it's, a, it's a gut check in terms of what we possess and what we have. The reason I mentioned that fire is the start of that fire was a fallen electricity line that began as a small fire in Ramona. And that eventually grew to acres and acres of burning. Small fire, small sin, begetting bigger sins. Let me give you one example of this by Paul David Tripp, who wrote a little article on Journal of Biblical Counseling called grumbling, a look at a little sin. He says, you know, we live with grumbling all the time. Isn't it amazing that we human beings can stand in front of a closet full of clothes and say we don't have a thing to wear? I've heard that. Uh, I'm not saying who, I just, I've heard that. <laughs> or, or stand in front of a refrigerator full of food and say there's nothing to eat. I've said that. I mean, that, that's, that's me right there. We are angry at the food and go on diets because we are convinced that anything that ever tasted good is fattening. Isn't it remarkable that we have wonderful activity-filled lives full of meaning and purpose and we grumble that we are way too busy? Or that we can look at everything that exists and find some reason to complain? Grumbling may seem like a little thing, a little sin, but I would like to propose to you that grumbling is a pollutant in the waters of your heart. It will kill life. When something small becomes so significant that you say to yourselves, I cannot be satisfied and content apart from it, it eats away at you and ultimately becomes a source of your rebellion against God. It becomes a big fire from a small fire because sin is a cruel master. But this is where Paul comes in. You who were in your old, old life, you who were slaves of sin, you are set free. This is who you are. You are set free from your sin. Often we keep telling ourselves we're not, but he's telling you, you are in Christ Jesus because you're united to him. In his death, you've done away with sin. In his resurrection, you've risen to the newness of life. You are in Christ Jesus and no longer does sin have mastery over you. Like a child sitting in a sandbox thinking that's the only thing and that's the best thing without knowing that there are far greater things, we often see everything from our perspective and do not believe when God says, sin does not have mastery over you. 
Because in Christ, He has freed you from sin, is what Paul wants you to understand. He says, in Christ, He has freed you from the slavery to sin. What's amazing in this picture, though, is that having been freed from sin, it doesn't mean that we don't have anything to obey. It's not about state of neutrality, that you've done away with sin. Now you're in a point of zero positive and zero negative. Here, Paul reminds us that being freed from the mastery and the cruel mastery of sin in Christ Jesus means that you now are free to serve a new master. This master is the fact that we are slaves of God. Verse 22. Christ sets us free from sin. As Paul states, having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. It is important to note that freedom from sin does not mean freedom from any standard of living. This is an answer he's saying. Just because you're free doesn't mean you have freedom to do anything. Here now you belong to God. Just because God is God of grace doesn't mean you reject and you run away. No, you live for Him. Freedom from sin allows us to become slaves of righteousness. Slaves of God, verse 18 and 22. We all serve something. And in this case, either sin or God. Here Christ frees us to wholeheartedly live for God and His righteousness. It means that our lives should be characterized by obedience to God and His standard of teaching. Becoming more God-like in righteousness, holding on to the eternal promise of Christ Jesus who said eternal life is what we have. But remember this, the reason we begin with Romans chapter 5 are indicative before the reminder that we live for God as slaves of righteousness is because it's not a life of righteousness in order to live, but a life of righteousness because we live in Christ. It's because we died with Him. We were raised with Him to the newness of life because we are raised with Christ. We are able to live in the righteousness that God has shown to us. No longer striving to be accepted. No longer striving to make the threshold. But because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus who died and resurrected, with whom we died and resurrected ourselves, we now are able to say we are freed from sin. We are no longer slaves of unrighteousness. Because of our union with Him, we are slaves of God, slaves of righteousness, not for our salvation, but for His glory. That we live we live a life of righteousness not in order to live but because we do live in Christ Jesus. He frees us 
to a life of righteousness. Friends, there are questions found in your handouts for each of the sessions. And all I can do is just encourage you to think about those questions as you reflect tonight and tomorrow morning as we come back and pick this theme up again of, of how does our righteous living fit in the overall understanding of the gospel of grace. And I pray, Lord willing, we'll see each other tomorrow morning again to pick up where we left off and draw to the climax of his teaching in chapters 7 and 8. May I pray for us tonight? Lord, how beautiful it is when your sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, made together as one because of Christ, gather together to revel in your word and to remember the grace that has been showered upon us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, thank you for reminding us that we are no longer condemned, but that we stand before you as sons and daughters justified by the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you for reminding us, O Lord, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but that you have freed us in Christ Jesus our Lord because we are united to him. And now we live freely for your righteousness and for your glory and honor. Teach us, O Lord, daily as our great discipler that your word will come alive to us. Your word will sharpen us and cut our heart daily. O Lord, remind us of your grace. Preach your gospel to us, O Lord, so that we as your sons and daughters may grow to reflect your image more and more daily. We thank you for tonight. We wait with eager anticipation of how you'll be teaching us tomorrow. Grant to us safety in our return. Grant to us good night's rest. Grant to us a morning of great excitement in you, O Lord. May we gather together to sing your praises again. For we pray these things in the name of the precious Son that you have given for our life and for our resurrection, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.